Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We are just a few weeks out from November 3rd, and we got our full panel again from home as COVID continues to rage uh, almost uncontrollably, one might say, here in Wisconsin. Claire Zauke is with us, our healthcare director. Claire, good to have you. Hi, thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Claire, look forward to talking more about this uh, situation with you here in a minute, uh, but also Robert Craig is with us. Robert, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Uh, good day to our digital and radio audience. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, we've got a full show. We're going to have uh, two more candidates for the state legislature with us. Uh, these are from the Driftless region in southwestern Wisconsin. We'll be joined by Chris Marion and Sean Murphy-Lopez. So we look forward to that later in the show. But let's get started, Claire. I'm going to go to you first because we, we need to talk about Wisconsin continuing to be a nation leading in just one of the worst areas of, of the country for COVID. And again, in one of the wor worst nations in the world, we are the hottest of hot spots. We're now testing at over 3,000 cases a day, 20 to 30 deaths almost a day the last uh, week or so. Hospitalization rates are at record rates. I believe we're, are we over 1,000 now or 900? Claire, obviously extraordinarily uh, uh, high numbers, but I want to get your comments within the context of a judge ruling this week, uh, rolling back uh, Governor Evers, uh, uh, the order to have public restaurants, indoor settings at 25% uh, attendance. Claire, so it's so been a rough week again for the health of Wisconsin. It's been a really rough week, um, and that uh, that feels like quite the understatement. I mean, we are um, we're still averaging something like over three thousand new confirmed positive cases a day, and the state just passed fifteen hundred deaths that are tied to COVID. And of course, we know that that is very likely an undercounting because there might be deaths you know where where this was a factor, but it was just very early on, and we didn't know, or we just you know, don't have the data to attribute those deaths to COVID. So, um, I mean, 1,536 uh, confirmed deaths as of the 15th is um, is is sobering. Um, and yet it doesn't appear to be enough to motivate our legislature, the Republican leaders specifically of our legislature, to do anything. And it's certainly not enough to keep folks like the Tavern League and their allies from um, being willing to set aside their self-interest in favor of the health of our state and the people who frequent their establishments. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about that um, you know, part of of why this is running um, so un, you know, um, unheated um, is the wrong word, um, but unencumbered, maybe whatever. Um, through the state of Wisconsin, is that um, you know we do not have elected leaders in the legislature who are willing to um, come back into work, and um, you know these these are numbers, and Wisconsin is getting um, national attention that makes it seem unfathomable that they could be um, ignoring this responsibility. Um, but also, I want to talk for a minute about the what I think is the irresponsibility of folks who like the Tavern League who are suing to keep their establishments open. Because if we had been doing what we should have been doing all along, 
and everybody had stayed at home. And if we'd, you know, been, been locked down for a little bit longer and got this under control, it might've been relatively safe to have some establishments open, right? If we had been able to get our, you know, get our cases under control. Um, and so, um, so, you know, I, I continue to be disheartened by what's happening in the legislature. I continue to be disheartened by this recent judicial ruling um, that came out this week that um, struck down Governor Evers' uh, 25% capacity at restaurants and bars order. That shouldn't surprise anybody who listens to our show. Robert, uh, the governor this week does appear to be getting a little bit more punchy in terms of going after the Republicans. I mean, we're, they're start, we're starting to get a focus. They haven't been around. It's been, we're at about 185 days since the legislature's met. They've struck down everything. They have not really put forward anything that seems to be scientific-based. Uh, Robert, your thoughts on Evers this week and uh, Evers pushing back a bit. Well, Governor Evers came in with a, and this is based on his career, his generation, wanting to work in a bipartisan way. This is not, he is not a partisan infighter, no matter how the right-wing infrastructure wants to frame him and, uh, and quite frankly, to smear him. And that's actually been a problem given the nature of the modern right and conservatives. They are about power period, and they're actually willing to kill people in order to try to harm the governor, not cooperate with him, and just get power again. So there used to be a theory divided government forced uh, both parties to work together. They were a check on each other. Well, you can see with the modern Republican Party, it's devastating. That it means that we have one of the worst responses to the pandemic in the country when during the progressive era in 1918, during the influenza, we had one of the best and had a lower death rate uh, than all the surrounding states when we, when we actually heeded science. And we knew much less about science then. And, you know, the one substantive conversation I ever have had since he's elected with Governor Evers was when, and I'm sure he wouldn't remember this because he has dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations with different people around the state every day, I'm sure. Uh, but he called to thank us for trying to, for helping him when they fired his, his agriculture secretary, Brad Pfaff. And um, I said to him, look, you have done everything you can to work with them, put out an olive branch. You do not want to fight. You want to find common ground. They have thrown aside the olive branch repeatedly, and you're going to have to change your approach. And he kind of sighed and said he was afraid I was right, but I also got a sense that he still wasn't quite prepared because he just didn't want to. And I, and I, I understand your whole theory of politics and how to get things done as an administrative official in schools, as Department of Public Instruction uh, secretary, et cetera, doesn't work. And all of a sudden you're in this hardball infighting situation. He stepped up a few times during COVID, done public safety measures, done the stay at home, but they have done, the Republicans, they've lied, they have used every legal means, they've used this rigged Supreme Court that they've stolen that also has these partisan conservatives on it that don't, that, that the idea they look at rule of law and are originalists is a joke, as we all know, and we're seeing that at the national level right now. And so this is all, the Tavern League is part of the Republican establishment, okay? They're one of their shadow partners. And so the, they, they promised the state Supreme Court they would have a plan as soon as uh, they struck down Evers' powers. And then they have been less active, according to WIS politics analysis, than any other 
full-time legislature in the country during the pandemic. So they're asleep at the wheel, not because they're lazy, but because they will not work with Democrats and they want total power and that's all they care about and they're willing to kill people to make that happen. And they don't believe in science. And, you know, climate uh, catastrophe is going to be worse. The pandemic has given us a better chance there by revealing them for who they are. This, we're going to continue to obviously uh, monitor this. This is this. Let's face it. It's an intractable situation. And it's part of the is because of what, Robert, you talked about this modern Republican Party. Um, I want to take a moment to let our listeners know that we're going to be having a movie night that talks about this modern Republican Party and what they've done to essentially gerrymander our state, suppress voting. And so we're going to be uh, previewing a movie, screening a movie here at Citizen Action Online. And we hope our uh, listeners will get on and listen. It's going to be Wednesday, October 28th. The movie is called Can You Hear Us Now? Uh, It is a fantastic documentary film that was here, was shot in 2018 that really followed a number of candidates and activists and people from Wisconsin and really demonstrates the gerrymandered nature and how Wisconsin is not competitive. And when you don't have politicians that are beholden to the voters or, uh, and they know that they can't be touched, uh, you, you, it leads to what Robert and what we talked about here. There's a complete dysfunction where there is no accountability uh, to the citizens. And this film is about that. It's a fantastic film. And we'll be joined by both the producers and the uh, director of the film. Also a Citizen Action co-op member and uh, candidate for the 24th Assembly District. Emily Segrist will be on during the movie. Uh, they will be answering questions and we'll do a live Q&A afterwards. Emily is running in one of those gerrymandered districts, but has a fantastic chance to win this year. And we'll talk more about that that night uh, in the Q&A and uh, look forward to folks joining us. Again, 6 p.m. Wednesday, October 28th. Can you hear us now? We'll have details on our website about it. Um, but Robert, we got one minute. I want you to give us a quick update on the Milwaukee Climate and Economic Equality Task Force. Yeah, it's the Milwaukee City County Task Force on Climate and Economic Equity. Rafi Smith, our Climate and Equity Director, is on it, as is uh, two of our members. We're one of the driving forces in creating it. And uh, Urban Milwaukee did a great story about how they are developing proposals for the city and the county that are bold on climate with real baseline benchmarks to get to cutting emissions in half and equally bold on racism and economic inequality and having as strong and unified a target and, and goal there as we have on climate. So this is the Green New Deal in action taking place at the local level because of what's happening at the federal and state level where we can't get any action. And that is a hope, very hopeful sign for the future and for progressives uh, to really change this world uh, once we can wrestle power from this malignant conservative movement. And we are going to talk more about uh, that later after the election. It's an absolutely critical project here in the Milwaukee area and in a number of other areas. uh, Communities are trying to do groundbreaking work. But we got to take a break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So 
we have got to talk a little bit about what is the biggest national news this week, and that is the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for, well, what's what will become Justice Barrett. Uh, I think we probably are all in agreement that they've got the votes for that. Uh, but I want to get uh, any any thoughts or comments from our panel about the hearings. I got to say, I've listened and I find them just infuriating. Uh, you get basically no information and it's just, it's like each side, nobody's listening to each other, right? Like it is our dysfunctional politics on display. Not Nobody's listening. They're just not. And they're just, it's like talking points. And it's, it's completely devoid of any real substantive content. <laughs> Those are my thoughts. Claire, yours. I think there are some interesting uh, questions that are being asked. And um, I think that there are maybe some things that we can read into answers, but uh, that, are, that are given by the nominee. Um, however, in general, though, I, th I think what you're pointing to is something that is very common in um, when judges or potential justices um, are being questioned. And I've seen this happen at the state level, too, with um, uh, candidates who are running for a state Supreme Court, um, is that they often don't want to give an indication of how they would rule on a specific issue because they want to maintain some, you know, veiled appearance of um, objectivity or um, they want to demure and say, oh, you know, well, I, I would rule on each case differently because um, it's not really about this particular law. It's about like, what is the question about the law, right? Um, and we saw this in Amy Coney Barrett's decision or um, answers on a number of issues, um, and I would point to because I'm the healthcare director, right? I was paying most close attention to what was going on around the ACA questioning. Um, her answers around the ACA, where um, some Democratic senators pointed out that she had um, previously written some academic papers or some reviews criticizing um, decisions, past decisions by the Supreme Court that upheld the ACA, and um, those uh, those were pointed out to her and said, you know, isn't this an indication that you would rule to overturn the ACA? And and she demurred and said, oh, you know, that, that that's an academic writing, not a judicial ruling. It's very different. Um, and also, you know, I would have to look at this very specific legal question in the ACA right now, which is around, you know, just because this one portion of the law was struck down, does it mean that the entire law has to be struck down? Or can you sever different components of the law? And that's like a very specific legal question. Um, which I think is just sort of obfuscating um, <laughs> the truth, which is that judges, and we, we've, we've talked about repeatedly on this show, which is that judges are human beings. And whether it's conscious or not, um, whether it's malicious or not, um, judges are humans and they will very often try to find a way to make the law fit what they want the law to be instead of being sort of just, you know, these law, very um, lofty minded strict interpreters um, of the law. So that's, that's how I would explain that phenomenon that you're pointing to. Robert. Claire is being very nice. It's all artifice. It's all fake intellectual kind of form in order to hide what's really going on. She is part of a right-wing conspiracy to rule the country as a minority. 
Uh, and uh, some of the Democrats have been able to point that out for those who are listening. But this is a strategy to get judges who, regardless of whether actually she believes she's involved in some elaborate intellectual exercise as described, they know that her exercise will result in right-wing decisions and 21st century right-wing dogma. Uh, and so what was interesting is, uh, I'll call out a couple senators uh, uh, for their work on this. Uh, you had Sheldon Whitehouse, who laid out the money behind this and the strategy and the corruption of it. And 80 they identified as where Republican donors on economic issues had an interest and that the Republicans on the Supreme Court voted in 80, all, all 80 cases unanimously for the donor side. And so he gave a brilliant 30-minute exposition of this. Uh, that was excellent. Um, Amy Klobuchar did a very good job trying to catch her on the fact that we now have three, if she's uh, confirmed, justices who were part of the Republican legal team that stole Florida and stole the 2000 election and got just enough Republican votes for Bush included uh, that didn't have voter information on them, were incomplete, and the Republicans were allowed to fill it in for them. And that was more than the margin. And so Klobuchar asked whether she thought it was interesting that all three of them who worked on that are now on the court. And she's, well, I, I, I'm just an associate lawyer. I have no idea why that would have any influence. Well, you know, that's how you get into the Republican, the Federal Society uh, food chain and move up and get court appointments. That's what's going on right now. And I think then, of course, on the substance, she wouldn't commit that the uh, uh, the Connecticut versus Griswold, Creswell versus Connecticut case that uh, allowed states, uh, prevented states from outlawing contraception was established law. Amazing. And that's not something any any other justice has refused to do when asked, including Roberts and, and Justice Roberts and others. Uh, but in addition to that, that the, 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 that case developed the, the, the right of privacy that is at the center of Roe versus Wade. So you know what's going on there. On the ACA, it's been very clear. So she is going to vote to take away health care from 20 million people. Uh, but then Kamala Harris yesterday caught her on climate and was asking her a series of questions about whether smoking caused cancer and whether the COVID-19 was infectious and then whether climate change was dangerous and was damaging the environment and uh, causing fires, et cetera. And she said she wasn't going to comment on that because it was an issue of controversy. So we have a justice who's willing to say that 99% of the scientists and all the better ones, international bodies, might be wrong because there are some right-wing think tanks paid by fossil fuel interests, et cetera, who have created disinformation to say otherwise. That's how bad it is. Um, everything else is just a lie and a fabrication or to try to sanctify something that stinks. With that, we have got to change our topic because we, we uh, we're going to be getting to some special guests here. And I want to make sure we talk about what's been going on in Wauwatosa in response to uh, the decision not to uh, pr uh, prosecute police officer. Uh, Manesh, who uh, killed, uh, shot, and it was now is the third person he has shot. And there's been a lot of protests uh, in the city for over a week now. And the response from the Wauwatosa police has been appalling, to be quite blunt. Um, 
I know the first evening there was some uh, property damage, uh, but like there's been very little of that. And all throughout there has just been a very aggressive approach and uh, inconsistent approach um, in terms of going after protesters who are protesting police brutality versus counter protesters who show up and appear to uh, uh, be untouched. Robert, I'm going to throw this to you as the director of citizen action. Um, your thoughts on uh, really what's been going on in Wauwatosa over the last week or so. Well, even justice, uh, uh, you know, whose future justice, uh, Comey Barrett uh, points out that, the two, two of the four elements of the First Amendment are freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, right? The freedom to protest, uh, though I'm sure she'd find some technical reason not to side with, uh, with, with, with peaceful liberal protest. That's how conservative judges work. Uh, it's stunning that you have news articles with uh, activists saying, gee, it's amazing how much worse the Wabatosa police are than the Milwaukee police. Why they can't they be reasonable like the Milwaukee police? That's how bad it is. They are targeting uh, indiv- uh, protesters. They are trying to shut down a First Amendment right because they don't want to be critiqued for having an officer now that's, that has now killed three people who is clearly uh, quick to, to use uh, deadly force. Uh, they, it's been heavily militarized. Uh, and in addition, there, it's selective prosecution of the, of the uh, curfew. They allow people from the outside who are supporting them, apparently right-wing types, to go through the town with impunity and not be arrested. So it is completely selective. In addition, they're arresting people who are dispersing when they're asked to be. And there are multiple reports of that. And they are apparently, this is the most disturbing, there's a lot of disturbing things, uh, people in camouflage, uh, who, are, who, are, who, are, who, are, who are detaining people and, and taking them away without, with the police standing by. And everyone, people are, think the National Guard is the ones in camouflage. The State National Guard denies doing any of that. And there are some indications there, there are, that it might be right-wing militia because the mayor, Mayor McBride, doesn't even know when asked how many different law enforcement agencies are in there and how we can identify them. And so it's really very scary. We know there needs to be investigation. There is a huge problem with police departments being uh, connected to right-wing militia movements. And that needs to be investigated here. It is a problem all over the country. The FBI has identified it as a major problem. And so this is a scary situation. And the problem is that the Tosa police have too much power, apparently more power than any elected official or mayor or anyone else in this city, no matter what they think. With that, we've got to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So we are joined by Chris Marion. Chris is running for the state assembly in Assembly District 51, which is in the beautiful driftless area of Wisconsin. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you all this morning. This is a crisp, beautiful day down here in the lower part of the Driftless. I don't know where what it's like where you are at, but it's a good day to be on the campaign trail. Well, it's a good day to be you. You are in a race where I, you know, we think you got a great shot to win. Tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself um, and your district and why and why you're going to win. Sure. I am a mom and a grandma. I run a bed and breakfast on my sheep farm 
just outside, just in the suburbs of Blanchardville, population 825. <laughs> so, Those suburbs a, are moving our way, aren't they? <laughs> yes, we, uh, we are just blessed to live in the Pecatonica River Valley. Um, so the colors are, are just passing their peak. It's fantastic. I am a Lafayette County supervisor. I'm, I'm sitting in my third term right now. So very involved in local government, one of the motivators for pushing me up to the state level, because as you know, local control has been rolled away under kind of the Walker, Walker-esque administration and, and legislature that we have now. Um, so I wanted to fight back for my community, but I also wanted to fight back for family farms are a big, big, big deal to me. We continue to have the highest rate of farm bankruptcies in the nation right here in Western Wisconsin. So the heartbreak in the field is palpable. We all know someone who's going out of business this week. That's our reality in Western Wisconsin. Um, also fighting back for small businesses. I, uh, I bring on a normal year over 700 people into my town of 825 and I send them all throughout the, the region to visit our bars and our restaurants and our lovely little shops and our, our farmers markets. And um, I'm closed this year because of COVID. I have a grandson who lives with me. I'm a real bed and breakfast, serving breakfast at my table. So it's pretty tough to social distance um, with our wonderful friends from Illinois who wanna come here and experience the, all the beauty that we have. So my, my two main emphases are really um, fighting for small towns and family farms and getting us the healthcare and the education um, and the broadband funding that we need to be functioning families in the year 2020. I, uh, I love that, Chris. I love your uh, introduction. Um, you are clearly somebody who is just incredibly passionate about their community and their district. Um, and it sounds like you already are doing a ton to contribute to your community. And so, you know, stepping up front for office is just going above and beyond. So you know, thank you for what you're doing. Um, you talked a lot about um, some of what your priorities are and what you want to fight for. And you mentioned healthcare at the end. Um, so I wanted to dig into it a little bit more. Can you talk a little bit about what you see are the healthcare needs in your district and sort of what you will fight for um, healthcare wise once you are in the legislature? Mm, thank you so much for asking. Uh, rural communities still feel forgotten by both parties, by our capitals, both nationally and at the state level, to be honest. And one of the hidden stories of rural communities, specifically in my community, is that many, many, many small and medium farmers rely on badger care. Um, in, in fact, um, I would say that the innovation and diversification that we need for the agricultural sector to, um, to survive is being hampered by our inability to get affordable health insurance. Um, and an example of that is almost every farmer you meet, regardless of their scale, to tell you the truth, is has somebody working off the farm to provide insurance. That um, may seem like a relatively easy solution. Someone drives a school bus, someone's a school teacher, someone's a nurse. Um, but if you think about what life is like on the farm right now, where we really need to innovate and find ways to add profit 
it, it really hampers our ability to have profitable farm enterprises. So we're sacrificing agriculture in the great state of Wisconsin because we need health insurance as farmers. That's crazy. And that is something that you just don't hear about enough. As a really active member of Wisconsin Farmers Union and a former founder of a, of a large chapter and a president of that chapter, I have gone to DC to talk about this issue many, 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 many times and also to our own capital. So I am very much in favor of um, taking the Medicaid expansion money from the federal government, but also expanding Badger Care to, to cover more people more people who are you know close to the limit who you don't think of folks in poverty it's literally hard working families and in my district that's going to mean the farmers but also um low wage earners who are literally cobbling together four different jobs to feed their family and let me be clear that includes teachers many teachers i know are also bartenders and some people give up teaching to do bartending full-time and that is not a situation we want to be in as much as i love our bars we really need teachers and we need farmers so let's fix this healthcare problem so i love how rooted you are in your region and understand its problems its challenges because those are the key criterion for citizen legislators going to madison and creating a stronger state and more prosperity and opportunity and knowing in and out how things affect your area, right? Um, you couldn't be more right about healthcare. There's not a lot of large employers that provide coverage and the employer-based healthcare system is, is, is in tatters anyway because of cost. So that is not even a guarantee anywhere anymore. Um, you know, there's a lot we can do on BadgerCare. As you know, taking the expansion money is a no-brainer because we're paying more to cover fewer people. That gets you up to this bizarre number, 138% of the federal poverty level. Little known is there's an option in the Affordable Care Act to do another public plan on top, which could be part of Badger Care, uh, up to 200% of poverty. So we could actually seek that. And then there's the public option uh, proposal that uh, that we have been working on for a while and has very broad support that would make Badger Care something you could buy on the ACA in exchange. And our latest numbers, uh, when they were run, had that being 24% cheaper with virtually no co-pays and deductibles, uh, which is amazing. And, uh, and if people really liked you know, a private plan, they could, they could keep it, right? Which people like choice. And so I'm hoping, based on the needs of your region, that, that when you are elected, you'll be a real, real ally in those things because you can really help explain how it benefits rural Wisconsin and the Driftless area. Yeah, I would love to partner with you on that. I have long admired your organization's um, take on healthcare. Uh, if you have television, which I don't, <laughs> you've probably seen ads accusing me of being in favor of a radical plan that will cost taxpayers billions of dollars for uh, apparently for every family it's it's insane what I'm gonna lay on the backs of these hard-working folks here in Southwest Wisconsin but the fact is I am a consensus builder and I like innovation and I am completely committed to expanding Badger care but I think there are a lot of models we could look at on my campaign team we have a lot of talented policy thinkers we've proposed some interesting solutions on our website 
CRISPRWisconsin.com. There's a 10-point plan for rural recovery. There's also a healthcare reform policy paper. There's a tax reform policy paper, which takes the burden of government off, off the backs of um, homeowners, which is pretty burdensome in Wisconsin. And also small businesses who we pay our own way every day and we watch Walmart making a killing on COVID. And that is really frustrating. And I think now we have the appetite to flip our tax structure on its head, get the base sitting on, on the big guys and relieve the little guys for, for a little while, create some economic um, growth uh, in Wisconsin. Anyway, healthcare is completely interwoven with the economic growth conversation in Wisconsin because small businesses, small farmers, main streets, look, Wisconsin's still rural. We're still a rural state and we have got to give some breaks to main streets, small businesses, and medium, medium and small scale farmers, because they are the ones who have always been the backbone of our economy. And we've completely lost our way with dark store loopholes and Foxconn garbage. It's time to flip the whole thing on its head. Okay, you couldn't be more right. We're the most rural state in the Great Lakes region, and we're only slightly less rural than Iowa. So let me ask you about broadband. Everyone says they're for it. Nothing happens. It seems like it's a public good, like the way we had to create utilities, as like the, like the Tennessee Valley Association for people where utilities just wouldn't provide it. The way we did a mail system, rural people would never have been included in mail if it wasn't a universal public system. Do you think we need a more structural intervention since uh, uh, Bi Joe Biden's talking about a, a new New Deal, basically, where we actually build out broadband for everywhere in Wisconsin so there's equal economic opportunity everywhere and rural areas are not left out entirely of the, of the internet age? <laughs> Amen, brother. You are preaching to the choir over here. Look, as a, as a rural local legislator, I have fought tooth and nail to get broadband uh, grants into my community. I have gotten to know the CEOs of, um, of, of the telecom providers out here. I have worked hard to get landowners to work with each other and come up with placement for towers that works for everybody. As a bed and breakfast owner, I don't want a single tower in my view, but I've got them now and I'm happy to make that compromise because my community needs broadband. I would like it to be fiber in the ground. I would like it to be a public utility. Richland County, I have four townships in my district and Richland has a, there's a little um, historical marker right outside of Richland Center in a beautiful valley that, that marks the first farm that was hooked up to the Rural Electrification Administration. What the heck are we doing? We will put a marker up to celebrate that, but we won't do it for our farmers now. Every last farmer needs to be connected to the internet and I would like it to be fiber. You know, we're, we're doing road projects. Hopefully we're gonna get better and we're gonna get off this 50 year road replacement program that we're currently on through debt service. <laughs> but when we get back onto our roads, we need to, we need to dig once get some fiber in the ground and get the every house hooked up. Montana, I believe a couple years ago, the stat was 17%, fully 17% of Montanans are virtual workers. Imagine the people we could keep and attract in Wisconsin if they could work anywhere from their beautiful farm in Richland County. And with that, 
we got to wrap up this segment. Chris, we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us about your campaign. Uh, could you give uh, 10, 10 to 20 seconds on how folks could get involved in your campaign? Chris for Wisconsin.com. There's a volunteer button. There is a donate button. Uh, if you are on the interwebs and you don't have the bandwidth to give or to work, please just share our <laughs> share from our Facebook page and spread the word. We've got a lot of good ideas, a lot of good people on the team, and we can always use more. Have a great day, y'all. Thanks so much, Chris. And with that, we got to take a break. That's great. Listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're fortunate to have a second candidate running for state assembly in the Driftless region. That is Sean Murphy Lopez. Sean joins us today. Sean, thanks for uh, coming on the show to talk to us about your campaign. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So you're super exciting. Uh, it's an area of the state that... Um, sometimes goes back and forth and certainly has a progressive tradition, but uh, has uh, mostly elected fairly conservative folks to the state legislature. Tell us about yourself and why you're going to win this race. Well, it actually, our part of the state almost always goes back and forth. So we elected Obama by 24 points, but Trump by nine. We elected Walker twice, but we just elected Evers and Joe Karofsky by 13 points. Uh, the latter one. So yeah, it's always up in the air here. Uh, as far as the legislature goes, the last time we had a Democrat in this assembly seat was in 2010. For four years, Phil Garthwaite was our representative here. And, you know, I think the reason we got a chance and can win this seat is because people are very independent minded here. You know, I, I uh, knocked on over 7,000 doors so far. And I, I pretty much just knock on every door when I go. Um, just to talk to a wide variety of people. And so many people here tell me they vote for the person and not the party. And so, you know, they're really looking for, you know, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for my community um, when you get in there if, if I decide to elect you? Thanks, John. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what you are hearing from your future constituents about what they are concerned about and what you would advocate for um, to hit the ground running uh, once you're elected to the legislature. I'm, of course, specifically interested in healthcare. if there's any healthcare things that you're um, hearing about. But if there's something else that is sort of a priori that comes to mind, I'd love to hear about it. Well, th so the top thing I'm hearing from voters right now is that they're, they're just tired of how um, politics is so dirty. It doesn't seem to be getting much accomplished. Um, there's not a lot of problem solving going on. There's too much um, kicking each other and talking bad about each other instead of working together. Now, that doesn't, I don't think anyone's under the illusion out here that just because you work together, you're going to agree. You know, that I think they want, they want debates, but they actually want to see people um, working with each other. You know, I think the way that I'm going to accomplish that is you know, if I get elected and there's still a Republican majority in the state assembly, or even if there's not, even if the Democrats are in control, I'm going to be inviting those people on the opposite side of the aisle to go out for a drink and to socialize with them and get to know them and, and be comfortable with having some level of disagreement and still, still working with the other side. 
Um, the biggest healthcare issue I hear about right now is just COVID. And I started door knocking in all June or July. And the, the amount of concern for COVID has just been growing throughout that entire period. I have a lot more people who now answer their doors with their masks on. Uh, there are a lot of people who have been in their homes out in rural areas, especially the you know folks in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who haven't been out uh, barely at all of their houses or apartments. So people are very concerned about that. They don't, you know, but at the same time, I think they want politicians who aren't just working, just thinking about COVID right now, they're still working on our other problems too. Um, you know, I don't really hear a lot about the federal um, Medicaid expansion. I know that's probably a pretty big issue um, in Wisconsin, uh, especially for our tax coffers, because we're paying for that out of our state income tax uh, coffers instead of out of the federal income taxes. Um, so that's going to be a big priority for me if I, I do get elected. I, I think we got to make the fiscally conservative decision there and start taking that that uh, that federal funding so that more people have health insurance here in these rural areas. And I and I a lot of these people are hardworking people who are out there working for eleven dollars an hour at a factory job without insurance. And how are they supposed to make ends meet? I mean, having affordable um, healthcare access for all, it, it's just not happening right now, even though my opponent is saying, oh, I, you know, that's, that's what I stand for, that it's not happening. Let me just uh, dig a little deeper. Um, how is rural Wisconsin going? What does it really need from state government? Uh, the problem, you know, is they that voters want both parties to work together, but you need two parties to actually cooperate. And there's one now that we know who are more connected that is adamantly opposed to cooperation, whatever their local legislator may say. So it does seem like we need a clear proactive agenda that really frames things up, up for voters so that they have a clear choice. And I'm just wondering with the economic situation, access to health care, uh, you know, the real decline of rural areas and rural ag agriculture, right, and, all, and the lack of broadband, all of that, how much appetite there is among voters out there uh, for bold solutions. We're at a time now where if, if I think we'll knock on wood, elect a Democrat president, it's a New Deal-like situation where I think both moderates and progressives in the party understand that we need much bolder solutions than we've had in, in four decades and actually to address all of the problems in our country. I just want to see uh, how much understanding or appetite there is for that in Southwest Wisconsin. So the probably the top question I get when I door knock, you know, is why are you running? Um, and I just tell people the reason I'm running is to bring rural areas back. And um, the decline in rural areas, I mean, gosh, that's been going on for, it's past my lifetime, it's, I think, since the 60s now. And it doesn't matter what party's in control. It doesn't matter if it's the Democrats or the Republicans. They're not helping r the rural economy. And, yeah, healthcare is an issue, but it, a lot of this comes down to jobs disappearing, businesses leaving, schools either consolidating or their enrollment dropping so much that, that the property taxpayers, the voters keep having to raise their property taxes to keep their schools open. So 
in general, I think there's a lot of pessimism out in rural areas about our part of the state or just rural America in general. And I think it, there is appetite for bold leadership if the leadership appears and if they have real solutions. You know, so take the example of broadband. Um, you know, I, I think the federal government, you know, obviously the state government's chipping in some grant money right now for broadband expansion. But if the federal government took all these people who are unemployed through the pandemic right now and trained them and started um, employing people to lay fiber out in these rural areas, wouldn't that be a lot better than them sitting at home um, just collecting unemployment checks? I mean, the, the federal government could be taking action right now and they're not. But, you know, I'm not running for federal government. I'm running for state. And I think the state could be doing a lot more, too. They they have this manufacturing tax credit with 95 percent of the the benefits or the handouts going to people who make more than 250 grand a year. Um, I'm not saying get rid of the manufacturing tax credit totally, but why does most of the money have to go to wealthy people? Let's redirect it to say a reinvestment tax credit for rural areas that have declining population or declining school enrollments. So, you know, working in middle-class people who have capital or want to take out loans to open up new businesses and say Cassville or Muscaday or, or Bagley or Hazel Green, all these little tiny villages out here that are struggling and have vacant, uh, you know, main streets that are a shell of what they used to be. You know, how about giving those people tax credits to get new businesses started and, and draw people out here? So I don't think the Republicans are doing that right now. I, I don't quite know why. It seems like they, you know, they were all about rural people. I don't know why for 10 years they were in control and couldn't get this, couldn't get this done. So that's why I'm running and giving them some competition, you know, um, so that, that hopefully if they still are in control, they'll do that. But if I'm in, you know, if I get elected, that's what I'm going to be uh, working on is how can we get our rural economy going again? That's my number one priority. Well, Sean, um, we really appreciate the fact that you're running and you're stepping up and trying to represent your community, right, and, and bring this uh, voice uh, to the legislature. Let our listeners know, particularly ones uh, who can help you out, uh, how, how they can help you out and how they could get involved in helping you uh, this final stretch the last few weeks. Yeah, so um, our district is the far southwest corner of the state. It's all of Grant County, which is Platteville's our biggest community, and then the western half of Richland County where I live. Um, people can go to our website, seanforruralwisconsin.com. Sean is spelled S-H-A-U-N, or they can call or text me at 608-462-3715. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks so much for running. We really want to encourage our listeners uh, to help you out and get involved. But uh, wish you the best of luck and look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you in the legislature uh, to go uh, battle for uh, a budget cycle that will actually bring the uh, things we need for real prosperity and opportunity in uh, places like your district. Yep, that's right. I'll be working for the people. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank, nice to thanks meet you. Thanks so much, Sean. With that, we're going to have to wrap up this podcast. Again, I want to remind our listeners we will be previewing and showing a special live screening of Can You Hear Us Now, Wednesday, October 28th. Uh, go to the link and sign up to participate in that. Um, we'll probably try to get uh, the director or producer on maybe next week before the film to talk a little bit more about that. But we got to thank our producer, Brian Woodridge, who makes the show happen every week. It's always challenging in this time of COVID. Also want to thank our special guest, 
Chris Marion, Sean Murphy Lopez. We'll see y'all next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.